welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Three years ago, I attended a community event where a doctor who was in recovery from heroin addiction herself described what goes on in the addicted brain like I'd never heard before. The lived experience that she shared with many in the audience that evening put her in a unique position to relate to and to help them. And I witnessed her connecting with people like I hadn't seen before. That doctor, Dr. Nicole Labor, is not only a successful addiction specialist with SUMA Healthcare in Northeast Ohio, but she's now a published author. Her new book, The Addictaholic Deconstructed, an irreverent, quick, and dirty education by a doctor who says the F word a lot, was just released in November. So I'm delighted today to have Dr. Nicole Labor as my guest. So, Nicole, welcome. Hi, Greg. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right in. About 15 years ago, you were addicted to heroin and you were in med school. So tell us, how did that happen? Well, to be fair... Uh, well, heroin was certainly the drug that kind of took me out of the, the game. Um, I, I was really just an addict. And, um, you know, I was using uh, whatever substances um, I could. And I, I guess it, it's difficult to say, like, how did that happen? I mean, I could pinpoint that all the way back to, you know, childhood with certain personality traits and a need to be loved and a need to be um, liked and a need to sort of create a persona that people viewed uh, in a certain way to control and manipulate, you know, so realistically, I could say that that addiction started long before I um, ever picked up drugs, you know, but, um, you know, how did it progress to heroin, I think is the same way as everybody else or not everybody else. But, you know, I started um, partying a little bit with different drugs, including opiates, pain pills and things. And then um, when I developed the physical dependence on that, um, it progressed to a cheaper and more readily available, you know, um, heroin. So um, how I made it from um, undergraduate into medical school while in active addiction um, is really one of the great mysteries of life. I honestly couldn't tell you other than, you know, that was the path I was meant to take and the universe sort of pushed me that way. In the book, you write about that day that you put all your cards on the table and you revealed that uh, you what you've been struggling with. So share that with us. So I was, uh, it was somewhere in my third year of medical school and um, I was uh, rotating through hospitals in New Jersey, which was kind of where the, the best dope was and my drug dealer was. And um I had a boyfriend at the time um, who was using with me. And this wasn't casual using. I mean, you guys are shooting up. Oh, yeah. We were using Ivy Hero. I mean, there was no, yeah, there was no question that it was like a full-blown um, addiction. We were, we would stay in my car a lot of times, you know, uh, in a parking lot or under a bypass if we had, didn't have somewhere to stay. Um, and then I would go into the hospital or the doctor's office where I was rotating the next day. Um, 
praying that I wouldn't get sick, praying that I had enough dope to get me through the day. And then the entire day I was fixated on, you know, texting him or calling him like, did you get any money? Were you able to find anything, you know? Um, So, yeah, it was it was all consuming at this point. And I think you convey that really well in the book. Yeah, it was just I was desperate. It was really bad. And I wanted to stop. And I think we had several times talked about plans to try and like wean down or switch to something else. And it just never worked because in that moment when that craving comes on, it's just like I have to feel different. I have to change the way I feel. So I'm going to just use. And then after I'd use, I'd say, "Okay, I'm ready now. I'm going to stop now. And, you know, it just never really happened. And um it, it was really getting to the point where um, I think I was even starting to notice like my behaviors were um, unpredictable. My my hygiene was suffering like I was just um, I was not really the um, the medical student, the picture of the medical student that you um, sort of would envision in your head. Um, and but I, I didn't know what else to do because my family didn't know um, that I was using and, you know, they just thought I was. you know, the star pupil in medical school. And um, so nobody really knew except for me and and my boyfriend and, you know, his family, I think, knew. Which is so often the case. Right. I think. And so I I felt really um, and I was terrified. I mean, I was really terrified because, you know, I'd worked really hard, I think. I mean, I don't have any recollection, but I assume I had worked really hard to get into school and I had always wanted to be a doctor. And, you know, here I was three years in huge amount of school loans you know, no way to pay them back if I didn't finish school and just absolutely terrified about what was going to happen if anybody knew. Um, and um, I was I was rotating in a doctor's office and, you know, by I mean, truly by the grace of God, um, whatever for whatever that means to you, um, they had a psychologist working in this family practice office. And like I to this day, don't think I've ever seen that anywhere else. Um, but you know, she was there and I was having a rough day. I think I was probably dope sick and I was um, not paying attention and someone noticed and I said, you know what, I'm, I'm just, I'm having a panic. I think I'm having a panic attack. And they brought me into this woman's office and, and for the, for the love of me, I cannot remember her name. And if I could, I swear I would, I think I said in the book, I'd open a wing in my rehab facility for her. Um, but she, um, you know, she sat me down, what's wrong? And uh, I started, to, she said, have you had panic attacks before? Is anxiety, you know, do you have the diagnosis? And I just started crying and I pulled up the sleeves of my sweater and showed her all my track marks and just said, I don't know what to do. And then she had like a moment of shock, I think a little bit. And then she walked over to her desk and she pulled out a business card and she came over to me and she said, there's an organization for the state that works with the state medical board that helps doctors that have a problem. And she said, so I think we should call them. And we did. And then she um, spoke to one of the attending physicians that was there. He was also incredibly um, supportive and said, okay, go home for the day. Um, We're going to see what we can do. And they called me um, later that day to see how I was feeling and to um, let me know that, you know, things were in motion and then the next thing I knew, then it became a whirlwind of um, I was going to detox. And even though my insurance wasn't going to pay for it, they were going to scholarship me to go to this seven-day detox somewhere. And um, and then I, I, you know, I went there. And then, of course, I, you know, I sort of lapsed back into that addict mindset of like, well, no, I don't, I don't want to go to treatment. I don't want to do all these things. What am I going to tell my school? What am I going to tell my family? And, you know, then I, I, um, 
I, I went to this detox, but um, I was not invested. <laughs> I was absolutely walking around um, like a peacock uh, because here I am a medical student. I'm not like you people, right? And um, I, uh, I definitely um, kept telling them and trying to convince myself that it was all physical. I'm only physically dependent on the heroin. I don't love it. I don't want to do it anymore. I just need to get it out of my system physically. Um, and I, I mean, I remember some things from that short stay, um, but mostly what I remember is getting out and probably two miles down the road I was using again. But unfortunately, the cat was out of the bag, or fortunately. <laughs> unfortunately for using me, but fortunately for current me, um, yeah, the cat was out of the bag and you know, things were already in motion. So the state, uh, New Jersey state um, physicians program was already aware of me. Um, and they were, you know, contacting me like, hey, we got to take the next steps. And then it was I had to go contact the school and sort of because I, I at that point obviously had to um, pull out of my rotations to go to, to the detox. And then they wanted me to do outpatient at first, which, you know, was a disaster because I was actively using um, but yes, I had to contact the school and inter interestingly, uh, I told my school that I was, um, suicidal and that I had to go into the psych hospital. But you knew what that meant, right? Or did you not know what you're signing up for at that point? Well, what I thought was that I would rather have a mental illness, which I thought would be more acceptable than a substance use disorder, which I thought would get me in trouble. So it made more sense to me to tell them that I was suicidal and going into a psych hospital. What I did not realize was that when I called them and said, okay, I'm out now and I'm ready to rematriculate, they said, well, we'll need a letter from your psychiatrist saying that you're stable. And at that point, I, um, I really had no choice but to um, tell them the truth. So, and again, that was, that was pretty terrifying. You know, I was really terrified that, this is it. It's over. Everything I worked for is going to be gone. Um, but it wasn't. That was 15 years ago. And to this day, when you retell that, pretty emotional, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. And I'm very grateful. I'm grateful for all the people involved, even the ones that pissed me off at the time, you know, um, because without them, without their support, without their help, without their prodding and poking and forcing me to do these things, um, I wouldn't be here. You know, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be doing what I do. So... I love in your book the way that you talk about the brain, the addict's brain in particular, and you do that in non-clinical terms and you throw in a few F-bombs here and there, but the midbrain, and as you talk through the midbrain and its impact on us and impact on addiction in general, speak to that for just a minute and its role in this whole process. Well, there's, so the two parts of the brain I talk about are the midbrain and the frontal cortex, and they're both really highly involved I mean, there's a lot of parts of the brain involved. It's a very complex process. Um, but those are the two parts that I feel like all people really need to understand. Um, and I think it's interesting that the, the majority of the damage that we see or the changes that we see neurobiologically in the brain do seem to occur in the midbrain. Um, but the uh, reparation of the brain or getting into recovery or getting clean and sober requires a whole lot of work on the cortex part. So the damage is in the, the midbrain, but the, um, the reparations happen in the cortex. Um, but the midbrain is the reward center. So, and our reward center is necessary for survival. Um, when a baby is born, one of the first things we do is we feed it. 
We do that so that the nutrients will trigger the reward system to tell that baby's brain, hey, I need these nutrients to live. And then that baby develops um, what I mean, what is essentially a craving for food and then baby cries and we feed it. Um, And so when people repeatedly use um, highly rewarding substances like drugs of abuse and addictive substances, um, they're exposing that part of their brain to really, really high levels of those reward chemicals. Um, And that when you repeatedly do that, when you repeatedly bombard any system in the body with um, high levels of something, it will adapt. It will adapt and change in order to accommodate that. And so the midbrain does that. It it says, okay, we're getting all this reward chemical, so we probably don't need all these receptors hanging out and, you know, take some of them away. But if there's fewer of them there, then that means it takes more of that dopamine to like swim around the brain and find those receptors in order for that person to feel any kind of, you know, joy or pleasure or um, comfort. So um, that, that's where the dysfunction really occurs. That's the primary dysfunction in addiction. It's a broken reward system. So let's go through a few of the other topics that uh, you talk about in your book. Some of them I hadn't heard of. The dysfunction of behaviors progression. I know that I talk about in the book um, glutamate um, and the role of glutamate and the neurotransmitter in the brain that's responsible for memory and consolidation. Um, and glutamate is responsible for sort of um, keeping files uh, about all pleasurable or rewarding things. And so when someone's using a, a drug and they get a high reward from it, glutamate writes down that that drug is rewarding, but it also starts to keep a file about all of the things surrounding that use. And so that includes behaviors. That includes the dysfunctional behaviors. So if I'm always having to lie and cheat and steal in order to get my dope, then glutamate's writing down in my brain a file that says lying and cheating and stealing are rewarding because they're associated with reward. And so ultimately over time, those behaviors actually start to become rewarding in and of themselves. And so um, I, I often see, and I, you know, even in myself, um, particularly in early recovery, but even now from time to time, uh, it creeps up, but that um, addicts will say, uh, you know, sometimes I just lie to lie. I don't even know why I'm being dishonest. I told you my shoes cost $20, they cost $40, but what do you care? You're not buying that, you know, like we're just sort of telling these lies to lie and we don't even know. And and it's about a control. It's about if I control what you think, then somehow I think I'm controlling the outcome. Um, but it's also that the brain knows that, you know, when I lie, there's a chance I'm going to get some drugs, which are rewarding. Um, so taking pills or taking anything to change your current feeling or situation. So, you know, I can't sleep, I need to take Tylenol PM or, um, you know, I am uh, restless and bored, so I'm going to eat a whole lot of cookies or, you know, um, we, we sort of stuff chemicals into our system in order to feel better instantly um, That because that behavior, that instant gratification, that coping skill of using a chemical is part and parcel um, with the addiction. Yeah. Another topic that you bring up is that I hadn't heard of is stress CRF. We have a hormone called corticotropin releasing factor, and it's released when uh, we experience a high level of chronic and severe stress, usually defined as trauma. um, But really, any chronic and severe stress could cause the release of this hormone. And when this hormone is released um, for evolutionary reasons, 
our our brain responds by decreasing the dopamine receptors in the midbrain, which is the same process that happens when we expose the brain to highly rewarding chemicals. So people who experience trauma or severe stress are basically primed for addiction. Um, their brain is already set up in the same way that addiction progresses. And so then they start using substances. They're able to feel normal, pleasurable, something they haven't felt in a long time, if ever. Um, and so then they continue to seek out those substances. And then, of course, the substances themselves continue to um, further damage the brain. And then now they're stressed out because they need to get drugs and money for drugs all the time. And that becomes chronically and severely stressful. Um, and, and it becomes a vicious cycle, you know, and then we remember that um, most addicts really do have um, intact, you know, value, moral, ethical systems. They know that most of the things they're doing are wrong or hurtful, um, and yet they are compelled to do them because it's the only way to make that their brain feel better, basically. Um, and then they're flooded with guilt and shame over violating their own value system to, to get the drugs or do the drugs. Um, and guilt and shame are chronic and severe stressors. And so it just continually exacerbates the cycle. So stress and trauma and addiction are very, very closely tied. So that also explains why so many uh, kids, as they're growing up, if they experience uh, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences that bring about trauma, that's why they're so susceptible to addiction. Correct. That is exactly why. And... Um, you know, I know that the the rates are reported are one in four addicts have a history of trauma. I, I just think that that's probably inaccurate reporting. I mean, I think it's probably a higher number than that um, because I think it's really hard. I mean, I, I think they do a good job with the ACEs. I think that's a, a fairly um, good standard. But I think that there are so many other things that happen to people that could potentially, at least for that person, be um, an adverse childhood event or experience that isn't necessarily being uh, cataloged or documented as such. So, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I had some, certainly had some traumatic experiences of my own growing up. Um, but, you know, um, there was a period of time where I was a little bit of a latchkey kid. You know, I, I went home, let myself in after school, watch TV. I don't remember ever feeling like that was a terrible thing or that was traumatic in any way or, um, but who knows in my brain as a child feeling like, you know, Nobody's home when I get home. I mean, loneliness, the isolation, et cetera. Yeah, it could very well have affected me in a way that, you know, again, is not necessarily something that's going to be reported or documented anywhere. Um, do, was I neglected? No, of course not. But to an 11 year old child subconsciously, did I, you know, could I have felt neglected? Sure, that's possible. How would you even know? No question about it. Coping skills. Talk a little bit about coping skills and addicts specifically. You know, the, the further you're into uh, your addiction, I'll call it, the less you really have those coping skills. And so when you go into recovery in the early days in particular, that can add a whole additional level of the challenge, right? Yeah, well, that is the challenge. I mean, that is where the, the whole um, concept of recovery or in those that want to argue the difference between recovery and like a harm reduction model, right? So when you stop using drugs, you can aim for harm reduction, reducing harm in your life, or you can aim for this growth and um, what, what people are calling recovery. Um, and the coping skills um, have a lot to do with sort of defining that. So um, the way that uh, I explain it is um, if I want to learn a skill, 
I pick up a guitar, for example, because I want to learn the guitar, um, and I start playing it, I have no skill. So it's like walking through the woods, right? It's creating a footpath in the woods. And every time I practice that guitar, I build a, a wider and wider path through the woods. And eventually, I can have a 16-lane highway with cars going in both directions, and I'm ready for Carnegie Hall. You know, I'm going to play the guitar at Carnegie Hall. Um, if I put the guitar down and I don't play anymore, we hang up a piece of yellow police tape and the road falls into disrepair. It doesn't go away, but it's just not taken care of anymore. There's potholes. It's fallen apart. Um, so 10 years, 20 years later, I pick the guitar back up. I'll probably be able to play, but not nearly as well as when I was going to Carnegie Hall. Um, so it's a matter of practicing again to repair the infrastructure of the road. Coping skills are skills. So they are the same sort of skill set as any other skill. And the highway or the road that I'm talking about is um, akin to the neurological connections in the frontal cortex. So the cortex builds up all of these connections and workarounds and all of these. Um, it becomes this very complex uh, sort of interaction between nerve cells. And the more I practice and the more I do it, the, the more robust those connections become. And so coping skills are sort of the same along the same line. So, but when someone starts using substances, when you start using drugs, well, they become the coping skill because they're so instantaneously relieving, right? No matter what you're feeling, a drug's going to change the way you feel. And so when someone starts utilizing a substance as their coping skill, it's like putting the guitar down. And so those coping skills, the behavioral coping skills, um, we hang up the police tape and the road falls into disrepair. Uh, so the only way for the person to really get back to a place of being able to function in society without needing to use some kind of chemical to alter their mood or change how they're feeling um, would be to rebuild um, those roads, to rebuild the, the coping skill set. You know, and, and that, I think, really explains well why it's a lot easier to, uh, for someone who becomes addicted later in life to get clean than someone who got addicted much younger in life. Children haven't necessarily even built those roads to begin with. So you take a child who experiences some sort of trauma and um, they haven't had time to create a highway of coping skills. There's still a dense forest and their coping skill is to use a substance because that makes them feel better. So when they decide to get clean and put down the substance, we're starting from ground zero. We're really trying having to teach them how to, you know, create a footpath in the woods and then widen it so that cars can can go down it. Whereas uh, an adult who started using later in life probably had a lot of those skill sets and the wiring in the brain already. And it's just a matter of reconnecting those um, those wires. Speak to genetics role in addiction. Well, so genetics is a really is complicated, I think. Um, and I'm not a geneticist, so I don't, you know, try to explain it beyond my scope of understanding. Um, but really simplified, I think that, you know, you have to have our, our DNA is composed of uh, a whole bunch of genes. And those genes really have to be triggered or turned on for us to experience the effects of them. You know, it's just like if you have a parent with one color eye and another parent with a different color eye, well, the one gene that gets triggered is the eye color that you have. The other parent's eye color gene doesn't get turned on, right? So you have blue eyes or brown eyes. Um, so if you don't have a gene for addiction, 
um, you're probably never going to be addicted. Now, I mean, obviously mutations occur over time and there are things that can happen to our DNA um, that, you know, and maybe trauma or stress could alter DNA in such a way that an addiction gene sort of um, uh, is created. But essentially you have to have a gene for addiction in order for the addiction to turn on. So if you don't have a gene for addiction, you can use drugs for a really long time and then put them down and walk away and never use another substance again and be fine. Um, but that doesn't mean you had addiction. It means that you use drugs for a really long time. Um, there's no genetic involvement. In the general population, it's relatively low, the people that are carrying that gene, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10%. Is that wrong? Yeah, that, as far as I know, that's not, that's incorrect. What, what I know or what I've read, and again, I mean, I'm, I make it pretty clear in the book that I hate research, so it's possible that I'm just making stuff up. But um, I'm pretty sure that it's somewhere around 60 to 70% of all people have at least one gene. It's only in about 10 to 20% of the population that the gene gets turned on, that it gets triggered. So you could be carrying it and, and it just never gets turned on. It only gets turned on in about 20% of the population. So I think, which I think matches up with the number of true addiction we see. So again, you know, there are, there's probably a large percentage of people out there that are actively using substances that we're calling addiction, but isn't necessarily addiction, meaning that there hasn't been any change in the brain um, to match up. And those people will be able to stop using at some point without much difficulty if they decide to. Um, but the ones who have true addiction, the ones who have this down regulation of dopamine receptors in their midbrain and this down wiring of their coping skills in the cortex, you know, that's about 20%, I think. In your book, you talk about some really difficult subjects, but probably none more than the loss of your husband, Gary. Yes. So what do you want readers to take away from that story? Well, I mean, I really, you know, that's, it's, a difficult, uh, it's a difficult topic because I, I don't want to make it about um, him or vilify him in any way or, you know, um, he was a remarkable person um, with just uh, an amazing heart and, uh, you know, he just, he really was very compassionate and ambitious and funny when he wasn't using um, and when he was actively using, he was the opposite of those things. Um, and so I think the, the importance, at least in, in the book for me, um, was about um, looking at it from, from my perspective, uh, which was that, you know, his addiction really triggered in me my addiction in terms of the codependency. Um, I thought I was working a pretty good recovery program and had pretty good coping skills, um, but I found myself, you know, very quickly turning into that super codependent sort of spouse, you know, um, where I was constantly being like a mother and a probation officer and, a, you know, a, a spy and a ninja and kind of trying to find out is he lying to me all the time. And it was really consuming for me um, and really unhealthy for me. Um, but I didn't, you know, it blindsided me. Like it just creeps up on you almost just like using, you know, you're using, you're having fun. And then all of a sudden it's a problem. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm married. I'm trying to help my husband. And then all of a sudden I have this problem. Uh, of being codependent, you know, but ultimately, regardless, um, when he did, you know, ultimately succumb to his addiction, um, you know, I, I stayed clean, you know, I didn't use over it. And in that, it was a very stressful and heartbreaking time. Um, but there was enough recovery in my life at that point, um, that I was able to utilize, you know, behavioral coping skills and, 
other people and connections and things in order for me to get through that um, in in the healthiest way possible. Because I certainly wouldn't have honored him at all by going back out and and using over his death. Speak to the recovery resources that were available to you as a doctor and compare that to what's available to the average person out there who struggles with substance use disorder. So, I mean, uh, in general, physicians and even really healthcare providers, I think, are at a great ad- advantage um, over the, the community, um, which is sad and unfortunate. Um, but, you know, as a physician, uh, if, if there's um, medical board involvement and there's a chance of losing your license as a practicing physician or never getting your license, um, you know, that's a, that's a pretty big carrot to get you to sort of be compliant and follow whatever it is they're telling you to do. Um, partly because doctors, we all have these really huge egos that are tied up with our license and being a doctor, you know, so the fear of that loss of identity, I think, is, is overwhelming. Um, but, you know, the, what these programs, these physician monitoring agencies and, and medical board agencies have um, found is that um, long-term residential treatment followed by long-term outpatient treatment followed by a period of monitoring, random urines, counseling, that sort of thing, um, over five years brings the recovery rate from 10 to 20 percent of the general population up to almost nine or over 90 percent in the physician population. You know, I, I think that that monitoring is a huge advantage because it takes, uh, you know, it takes that long for the brain to really fully regenerate and co- enough coping skills to be able to develop, to um, be able to deal with life. But most physicians, when they get um, into recovery, are not necessarily in the same place that I was, where I really felt overwhelmingly like I can't do this anymore. Um, most of them get caught. So, you know, they get a, a DUI or they're operating and they, you know, look impaired so they get caught and reported, and then they have to go to treatment. And that's similar to, it's, a, it's similar to people in the criminal justice system who commit a crime and then, you know, have to go to treatment. It, you're not necessarily ready. Like, just because there's some consequence doesn't mean that that's the, quote, bottom, end quote, for you, you know. Um, so it takes it takes a long time for the brain to sort of process through this idea that, like, yeah, the, the drugs really are a problem, not just because I got caught, not just because, you know, other people think it's bad, but like truly my life was falling apart. And I think that it takes sometimes a couple of years for that to really happen. And in the meantime, they're sort of forcing you to go to meetings. They're forcing you to go to support groups. They're forcing you to meet with a counselor and sort of look at all this stuff. And so those that highway is being repaired, even, you know, without your full participation, um, and ultimately one day that they pulled the police tape gets pulled down and you're like, okay, yeah, you know what? I do want to travel this highway. I really do want to kind of get well and live life and not have to constantly be thinking about using something. And so I think that five year period really, um, speaks to that. And it would be lovely to be able to provide that to everyone in the community that has addiction because it's a chronic disease, right? We're saying this is a chronic lifelong disease, but then we're giving you 30, 60, and 90 days worth of treatment. Like that's a drop in the bucket compared to a lifetime of chronic illness. You know, that's like an endocrinologist telling a diabetic, like, well, I'm going to provide you with 90 days worth of insulin, 
you know, and you can meet with the dietitian during this 30 day period, but then for the rest of your life, you're on your own, like, and then expecting them to be like amazing at treating their diabetes. I mean, it's crazy, but, um, but yeah, and it's very hard to get people to, that would want to even sign on for that sort of thing, unless they have something hanging over their head. That's pretty significant to them. You have a great quote in the book that I think is probably attributed to spirituality, what it means to you. But you say people and circumstances in certain places at just the right time coax your life in the direction it needs to go. What's that mean? Well, I, I mean, this is a, this is a uh, retrospective um, realization for me uh, in that when I, when I do look back on my life, I could even uh, the, the sort of bad uh, situations or the negative um, things that happened, uh, they all really played a role in sort of moving me towards where I am now. You know, they all sort of uh, put that fork in the road for me to say, okay, well, this is something that's happening in your life, so you have to pick one road or the other, you know. And um, one of the things that I've really learned in, um, in recovery is that when I'm faced with a fork in the road, if I have to make a choice between one path and another, it's only because one of those paths is the right thing to do and the other one is what I want to do. Because if what I want and what is right are the same, there's no fork in the road. It's just a single path, right? And so it becomes about really um, uh, being clear as to figuring out which is which and then taking the right path as opposed to what it is that I want to do. Um, and so, I, again, you know, uh, I think that there are um, these pivotal moments throughout my life where I think I was kind of faced with a fork in the road um, and without the ability to, to determine on my own which is the right and which is what I want, people and places and circumstances arise at that moment to sort of gently nudge me down the path that I need to go. And that's really what I talk about, too, in terms of the brain and spirituality. Um, you know, there is an area of the brain that is associated with spirituality. And it's a little bit complex to understand um, because essentially a very spiritual person has a lot decreased activity in that area of the brain because that area of the brain is associated with self-centeredness and self-seeking and um, being sort of, it's all about me. Um, and as we move towards this idea of what is my purpose in the universe, what is my place in this world, how can I be of service to others instead of just myself, the activity in that area of the brain decreases. And as it decreases, we become more humble, more willing, more honest, and we start to develop these kind of principles of spirituality. Um, and, uh, and that gives, at least for me, gave me a lot of clarity you know, and it really made it a lot easier for me to hear the messages from the people around me and see what what the situation or circumstance was trying to guide me to do. I think that my the spiritual part of my brain, um, I put work into it every day. You know, I put work into trying to keep it um, sort of less about me and more about others in the world. Speak to finding your purpose and its role in recovery. My personal opinion. And I don't probably partly my professional opinion, but really my personal opinion is that if you don't have a purpose, if you cannot find a purpose for yourself, you will not get well, not from anything. If you have nothing 
to to no direction if you don't know what your um role in your own life is uh it becomes really really hard to to claw your way out of the mud you know if you can't see the light <laughs> what are you reaching for you know where are you going if you're in a, standing in a dark room and there's no light at all you're just spinning in circles so finding a purpose is about finding that crack in the wall or finding that keyhole or finding something you know that makes sense to you and it doesn't have to be grandiose i'm not talking about like your purpose has to be to like you know, stop world hunger or, you know, even to treat addiction. I mean, it could be simply to be a good mother and daughter or spouse or neighbor or a good church member. You know what I mean? Like whatever, whatever uh, you feel in your heart as, you know what, it is really my purpose to just change this one person's life. You know, that's finding a purpose. And and I think that's what really drives us to, to really do anything uh, substantial. Last question. What do you want people to take away from this podcast? Well, I want people to take away my book. An outstanding book. And I tell you what, it's quite a read, a quick read, but one that'll stick with you for a long, long time. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. No, I just really want people to understand that, you know, like I I think we just need to keep talking about addiction. We need to keep talking about it, you know, in this way that it's that uh, makes it less sticky, that makes it less uh, uncomfortable and awkward and you know, allows us to really look at the root of, of what's going on that, you know, there's a brain science, there's brain chemistry, there's damage going on in the brain and it's causing people to behave badly and it causes people to make bad choices. But there are lots of people not using drugs out there that are making bad choices, you know? Um, but for, for whatever reason, we, we as a society like to stand on our soapbox and cast judgment on those whose bad decisions involve using drugs and not necessarily those whose bad decisions uh, fall into some other arena. Dr. Nicole Labor, thank you so much for joining us today. Really, uh, really appreciate your time. Well, thank you. We've been joined today by Dr. Nicole Labor, a successful addiction specialist with the SUMA Healthcare System in Northeast Ohio, and now published author of the new book, The Addictaholic Deconstructed, an irreverent, quick, and dirty education by a doctor who says the F word a lot. It was just released. I just read it. Fantastic book. I got to tell you, if you have a loved one who's struggling with substance use disorder, if you want to understand what it's all about, read that book. I encourage you to pick up that book, read that book. It'll give you a whole new perspective on it. My name's Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. For the latest on community events and our podcast series, Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Cover2Resources. That's cover and the number two and resources. And as always, thank you for listening to the Cover2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. 